Welcome to Plato's Gravity, a homebrew podcast. This is Aaron. And I'm going ape shit. Ape shit. Is, um... That's it? Well, okay, so uh, full disclosure to the listeners out there, I was asked if I could begin every episode with a uh, Queen Bee reference, which which would be... (laughs) Who asked you that? uh, Lady Beyonce, and uh, I don't really know the lyrics to most of her songs, but I do, in fact, remember having listened to the last album by Miss Queen. just, Just tell us your name. I'm Jason. All right, it's Jason. All right, and our guest today has presented nationwide on topics such as fermentation, natural and holistic homebrewing, modern homesteading, and sustainable living. And he recently published his second book, Brew Like a Yeti. Jeremy Zimmerman, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what we, we usually start most of our shows uh, with a beer chosen by our guest. Today is no different. Jeremy chose for us uh, Three Philosophers by Omagong. Jeremy, can you talk about oh why you chose? <laughs> talk about why you chose this beer for the show? One reason, because it's one of my favorites. Uh, another reason, because a lot of the ones that I had thought of choosing, I realized were very minimally distributed. But this particular one, I, I, I really like Belgians. I like the complexity of Belgian beers. I haven't met too many actual Belgians, but I, I do enjoy their beers. The only, I think um, the only one I know is Poirot. Um, shout out to Agatha Christie. <laughs> yeah. Did someone also ask you to make an Agatha Christie reference at the beginning of all the shows? No, oh. I just had that one you got for free. <laughs> but I also enjoy, um, I, again, I don't speak Belgian, so I call it Unibrow. It's a Belgian brewery similar to Omegong. It's U-N-I-B-R-O-U-E, something like that. So, Unibrow yeah. Brewing. You guys can check the shows for the link to that, all right? It's, uh, um, but they, they aren't distributed, I don't think, in Indiana. But this, So, can you talk about uh, what you're tasting in this beer? This, uh, I, I think we talked a little bit about how you enjoy complex beers. This, uh, this certainly fits the bill. Yeah, and it's, it's got a real strong multi-character. I like the malt to really come through. But this one in particular, it has, I think it says in the bottle, it's something like 98% of their uh, quadruple ale, right. a, more of a straightforward malt, and 2% of a cherry. So right. I, I tend to find a lot of fruity beers to be a little too fruity. This one has just enough that it kind of hits you a little bit, and then you still feel a lot of the malt. Well, yeah, it's it's really nice because in addition, like you have the malt character, then there's the cherry, and then there's a little like I don't know if there's any Brett in this beer, but there's just a little like funk kind of flavor to it, which is delightful, and it kind of brings yeah. those two together. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's I don't I don't think they do Brett, but again, you know, Belgian beers in general just kind of have they they go a little more wild than yeah you know, you, standard brewing, like some sort of uh, aggressive yeast. The the thing with this beer is like complex is a great way to describe it because I have no idea if someone were to ask me what does that taste like the only thing i could compare it to is this beer and like this style of beer i don't actually know i don't have words to describe oh it tastes like uh i don't know i got i got nothing your beer lexicon is in need it's uh, apparently in and i i know that everyone thinks that i'm such a good beer t- <laughs> I've never been accused of that in my life. No, but I love it, and I love Belgians. I just don't know. Man, maybe I should do some reading. So I think what's interesting, we mentioned Jason's beer lexicon being lacking. You brew with uh, a whole bunch of ingredients. We haven't really gotten into your book yet, but your book is brewed beer. It's almost like when I said I should read something, I was transitioning towards, hey, you write books. 
Yeah, you brew you <laughs> brew beer like a Yeti where you're looking at some unconventional recipes. So before we get in too much to your book, what's your favorite uh, like your favorite one or two beer like like beer tasting words that you might get to use that other people who don't brew with like juniper don't get to use? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I have an answer for that. I I don't really get into uh, you know. You know, I, I tasted a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I really should get my beer tasting exam at some point. Sure. Um, but to be honest, a lot of these, you know, we, we say non, non-traditional or non-conventional ingredients mm-hmm. were very, very common even you know, just a couple hundred years ago. So a lot of the flavors are actually kind of similar. Like the, the juniper has the branches, if you brew the juniper branches, they provide a bittering similar mm-hmm. to hops, but, you know, not quite the same. But you drink it and it does, it does taste yeah, a fair bit like a, a hoppy beer. All right, I um, uh, I feel like I'm gonna have to try. I'm gonna have to try that because I just I don't feel like I can like get my mind around it without like drinking some. Well, it's different. I mean, people have tried it. Always say, I don't think I've had anything quite like this. So I mean, it it has similarities to modern beer, but there there is a certain sweet bitter contrast. That isn't quite the same as with a hobby beer. I know I did say it's similar, but I guess what I'm getting at is you can drink it and you can feel like you're drinking a modern beer, but there's just something extra and kind of hanging out in the back there that you can't quite put your finger on. So will that kind of, and the way you're talking about it, will that kind of like stand up to, to kind of a big malty beer? Like what, what, uh, if you were going to just say replace hops with juniper, would you, would you do that in like a, like a Martin style where it's like big and malty and it competes with that? Or would you like do more like a Pilsner or a, like a Kolsch or something like that? Um, well, the, the beers that I do brew with juniper are based on, Scandinavian farmhouse brewing that is still going on today. Mm, People okay. are still doing that. And usually those are very malty beers. And part of the, like Sati is an example uh, from Finland, S-A-H-T-I. Sweet. Okay. And that part of the process with that is uh, you, you heat the mash at different temperatures. There's a whole bunch of different crazy stuff going on just in the brewing. And what you come out with is is actually a very strong malt flavor, but you almost taste a little more of the, the raw grain Okay. Then you might, and it's it's cloudy. It's not you know it's it's not really heavily filtered. So it's yeah it's 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 definitely a definitely malt forward. I would say. Right. So you're not you're not trying to get something like super dry. Yeah. I mean, you can do that. It's just that, that particular style doesn't tend to come out that way the way I brew it. So like when we're talking about traditional brewing methods, right? So you didn't start off doing. I suppose, old world brewing style, right? Like, how did you start off when you brewed? Probably like pretty much every other brewer. Went to a home brew store, bought a kit, bought a, you know, bought some extract ingredients. Yeah, I heard that first batch cost you, almost cost you a couple hundred dollars. What was that like? It, it, it might have been more, more than that. I'm not, <laughs> um, yeah, so so you're, what you're referring to is my, um, I'm, I'm, I'm in Kentucky. I'm from Kentucky, but I moved to Seattle for about eight years. Okay. And that's where I brewed my first batch. So I was in a little apartment. Yeah, I was following those instructions closely, kind of freaking out to make sure I got everything just right. And so, you know, it was a pretty hectic day. Yeah. And I had it on the stovetop. And, you know, I, I remember being clear when you put the extract in, watch it closely, keep stirring. I stepped away for a second. I, I'm sure plenty of other brewers have had this happen, but mm. you know, just foamed over. Foaming, over yeah. Stove. Yeah. And, That's... you know, just it was getting late and I still needed to get it cooled down and so I could fix the yeast. So I basically, I just pulled it off. I left all the stuff on the stove and didn't didn't clean it off while it was 
still kind of oh, oh, still bad, bad no. idea. Why? Well, I think that's just like stove redecoration. Like it's now <laughs> it's now a wart stove. I think this is great. It turned hard as a rock, and so when I got most of it off, that stove is not so pretty looking. You basically you made malt candy. Yes, <laughs> hard candy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think they sell that at the homebrew shop now, like the the hop candy. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. They do, yeah. and it's fine. So you, you started uh, up in Seattle with an extract batch that boiled over, um, and now you've written uh, two books about turning things uh, that weren't alcohol into alcohol um, using some old world styles. Can you talk about kind of the journey from, you know, where you started in brewing and to now where, where you are? Yeah, like how long was that process of going from your first extract kit to well, I'm going to make a Norwegian beer that's the technical term people is norwegian beer well from from extract to norwegian i mean the the timeline was probably like 15 years but there was there are a lot of transitions in between and some periods of not really brewing at all just okay went through a couple moves and the the brewing equipment just kind of you know sat for a bit yeah but you know i think it all it really goes back to how i grew up um you know i grew up on a farm in kentucky and my dad taught english my mom stayed at home and homeschooled us so we had very, very little money. We, you know, we're self-sufficient. We pretty much had to be self-sufficient. Mm. So we gardened and my dad made wine, but he you know, pretty much used, got all of his ingredients from, from the garden mm. or from stuff he foraged. And so I, I kind of already had that in my blood. And then when I, yeah, when I moved to Seattle, I was, I, I realized pretty quickly I'm more of a beer drinker than a, than a wine drinker. So I decided <laughs> that would be how I'd carry on my dad's legacy. And, you know, starting out, I didn't know what I was doing. So I just, you know, I bought Charlie Papazian's Complete Joy Home Brewing. Mm-hmm. Got my first kit. That gets us all started up. The Bible, if you will. Oh, yeah. And I will say one thing I realized right away in the first batch was I decided, I think I did a raspberry wheat. So I bought some raspberry extract. Nice. It was good, but it tasted kind of like a story about raspberry soda. I mean, I could definitely, I, I got the idea of the extract, just didn't it, it taste it. Yeah. I don't know. That, that, that was kind of where I started to think, well, I'm going to do more whole ingredients. So not long after, I took one of Charlie's stout recipes and decided to add some, uh, well, I was still in Washington, so I, I added espresso. Okay. <laughs> and then I added some uh these uh, sweet Washington, I think, Bing cherries that we picked and canned. Okay, yeah. So it was this cherry espresso stout, and, you know, it was just amazing. I, I think adding the, those whole whole fruits instead of the extract helped quite a bit. I mean, that sounds amazing. I feel like I would drink a cherry espresso stout right now. Well, it's a thing that like we've talked about, uh, Aaron and I have talked about, you see a lot more... Um... Oh, so yeah. So we, there's there's the new phase going on, or fad going on of people making white stouts or just other beers where it seems like they're making some beer and then they're flavoring it with extract post-fermentation. Yeah. Uh, I am not particularly a fan of this, of this fad. Other people, my wife loves it. Kelly loves she loves the extract flavored beers that's all she really wants in a beer but for me it's like well i want my beer to taste like beer if i want soda i'll drink soda you know so like no i get i get i get what you're saying 100 percent. so you you started off with extract soon you're adding cherries and coffee and and getting some of the flavors you want how long after that that's kind of real quick in succession how long after that is it before you really do something that that you would call non-conventional brewing um so i was in seattle about eight years and i I Mm. brewed a few batches and then I, I moved back to Kentucky, and that was kind of where there's a bit of a transition where I didn't brew quite as much. Sure. Uh, sure. Going through a lot of life changes and moving. And, and I, I really started to get 
back into the idea of the lifestyle of the way I grew up. Mm-hmm. And I think that started to work its way into my brewing. And initially, I you know, it, it was actually me and a couple friends who were starting to get the idea that we, we were getting into mead. Okay, yeah. And because we were into mead, we were also into Vikings and mythology and history. Yeah. So at some point, we were, we were sitting there going, you know, people even 100 years ago, but especially back in Viking times, did not have any of the equipment that we have today, didn't have any of the sanitization stuff, yet... You know, you read all this stuff about, you know, raucous times in meat halls and beer halls and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So between that and just my wanting to be able to, you know, brew and cook with as much as possible with stuff that I was able to you know, grow myself or forage myself or buy locally, that kind of got into the mead. And then somewhere in my head popped up, make mead like a Viking. And I called a workshop or two that title, and then I got a book deal for my first book, and that became... The title of my first book. So you have two books, Make Mead Like a Viking and, and Brew Beer Like a Yeti. So I have a very, a very important question that really had been bugging me since we set out to do this interview with you. Yeah. I think I know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Who wins in a fight versus a Yeti and a Viking? Oh, well, I wasn't expecting that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think if we go back to the story of Grendel <laughs> and Beowulf. Grendel it was a very Yeti-like creature, so touche. It, 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 it was it would be a tough fight, but I think the Viking wins in the end. You think a Viking wins? Well, if it's if it's a Viking, if it's Beowulf, if it's that, like if it's a Viking that, worth talking about, because like if it's not a Viking we're talking about, we're not talking about them, right? So it's Beowulf, and Beowulf beats a Yeti every time. And then the world's just drinking mead. Yeah. yeah. All right. It's a good thing they didn't fight though, because I like I like in a world where there's mead and and beer and there's Vikings and Yetis. We actually Sorry. don't. We live in a. We, the, neither of those things exist anymore. Shit. I mean, the beer and the mead still exist. I hope. Can I throw out an answer to the question I was thinking you might have? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Totally. Well, first ask the question you would think I would. Yeah. Pose the question well, and then answer it. I like the idea that we just have people on to ask themselves questions. New well, podcast. It's something I feel needs to get out there because I. It's, well, the question would be, do, do Yetis brew beer and why do you? That's what I was going to ask, actually. Uh, the, the reason for the Yeti is that's, that's my nickname. I initially started blogging about all these fermentation ventures under Redheaded Yeti. <laughs> so I became known as the Yeti. And so that's kind of uh, that's, that's part of the transition where I was blogging for the kind of homesteading crowd is uh, I came up with the moniker Redheaded Yeti and it kind of stuck, and my publisher decided they wanted a title similar to the first book, but I went far beyond Vikings. Far so. beyond Vikings into into the Yeti. So do Yetis brew? Uh, well, this one does, <laughs> um, but we're all very, very reclusive, so I don't know any of it. <laughs> That's awesome. It's in, my, in my head, because there's like a new animated film about Yetis, right? Am I correct in saying this? There's a uh, new film about the abominable snowman kidnapping a human being. And I thought that maybe it was like how when one thing happened, like when March of the Penguins came out, suddenly there were like a billion animated movies about penguins. I had assumed that like the book was named because your publisher was like, hey, there's a movie coming out about Yetis. What if we did a Yeti thing? That'd be real cool. I'm kind of glad that that's not the case. Yeah, no, no, that's that's, that's not it. They're, Chelsea Green's my publisher, and they're 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 pretty uh, savvy with the marketing and all that. So I I think they decided that. Anyway, I have no no idea what movie you're talking about. I've not heard of it, but I I don't think, think it's going to be 
good. I mean, yeah. it's an animated film. No, I think I might have heard something about it. It'll be in the uh, shows for those of you who are anxiously awaiting uh, the the Yeti kidnapping movie. Um, <laughs> so you talked you, you, you talked about your 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 kind of influence in the homesteading crowd. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how your work in homesteading or in sustainable food kind of informs your the books that you wrote and the way that you brew? Yeah, that, that kind of has been, I guess, my core audience um, since mm-hmm. I started. And to be honest. It's hard to really put a word on to what the movement is. I mean, it's sustainability. Some people call it modern homesteading, DIY. I just call it living because it's how I <laughs> I like things. But then, yeah, a lot of people are getting back into this. And, and a lot of us, I've found, you know, brew. And so they want to incorporate that kind of thinking into their brewing. I, I think I lost the uh, gist of what your initial question was. Uh, really, just like how, you know, how your work in sustainable uh, living, or as you put it, uh, living, kind of affects your brewing. <laughs> See, but the thing is, if I ask you how that affects your brewing, and then you say this is just what I call life, then really I'm just saying, how does you being alive affect your brewing? It's a really kind of a rude question, so I apologize. Yeah, that's perfectly fine. There is, a, to a certain extent, like, does it, how do you feel about the fact that just the way you grew up and the way that you live now is sort of a, a fashionable thing to do? Is that a good thing? Is that worrisome? Well, no, it's it's definitely not bad. I don't like when you know things get trendy. Yeah. I, I do think that the Viking thing has gotten a tad trendy, mm-hmm. but but as far to be as fair, uh, Vikings are pretty fucking cool. Yeah, it, it, it it's kind of hard to not like Vikings. But you know, it's for the rest of it. I think it's great because I think people are just wanting to know where their food's coming from, and that goes, you know, drink drink goes hand in hand with yeah. food. Right, and pe- people are wanting to do things for themselves they're, they're getting a little tired of you know just spending a life you know just going to mcdonald's and or buying processed foods and that and it's 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 fun it's fun to grow your own stuff and to tinker with ingredients from the very beginning of the process to the end so i i, I you know it's it, it it inspires my brewing just because it's part of who i am mm. i mean i i didn't even really realize it was a thing until i found out that lots of other people were getting into it well and i kind of like the idea that um Exploring old ways of doing things uh, can inform the modern way of doing things, you know? Kind of like how we're constantly discovering old medicines. Not constantly, not like once every few seconds, but sometimes people read an old historical text and they'll talk about, oh, this person had these symptoms and we called it this, we called it like, I don't know, dropsy or, I don't know, some weird disease name. But possession we, yeah they were possessed and so we gave them this flower and they felt a lot better and it turns out that that flower when they do lab lab tests on it actually helps with psychosis or something like that how old old ways can inform because they didn't have the equipment and they had to make something work period like if you i mean i i suppose you can you can fuck up beer to the point where if you drink it, you get sick, right? With anything that's fermented, because you're working with what is argue you're you're control of you're controlling the spoilage of beer. You're controlling the spoilage of water, really, right? Yeah. So if you spoil it the wrong way, you're gonna fuck up. And if you don't have equipment, you have to be very careful. You have to know what's going on. You have to do very specific interesting things yeah i've heard of fermentation referred to as controlled rotting yeah because i ferment a lot of vegetables too and there, there is a fine line between 
fermented vegetables and just plain rotten vegetables. <laughs> it's, I think the no, it's usually on the nose, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, if it smells good, eat it. Yeah, but you, you do bring up a good point about the, you know, one thing I'm, I'm also into is herbalism and the going into older styles of brewing got me into that because I started to see in these older brewing texts these huge amount of herbs, mm-hmm. you know, turns out a lot a lot of them just grow wild in my backyard nice. and and but the fact that people for thousands of years have known the medicinal qualities of all these different herbs they just figured it out over time and so now we're you know, we're starting to realize that yeah, just because you know it was a thousand years ago doesn't mean that these people weren't smart weren't doing something yeah. right so I, I i do think it's very important to, to continue to look back at the past to, as we move forward. And in a way, like I think uh, herbed beers are still fairly popular in like Scandinavia and Iceland, right? Yeah. Um, well, herbed, uh, I would say spirits more okay. so. I can't think of the names of all of them, but I, I've had some friends who have been over to like Iceland and Denmark, mm-hmm. and there are a number of really popular uh, schnapps that have things like, you know, wormwood and all these bittering herbs and all these really funky tasting herbs. It used to be a lot more in their beers traditionally but i think it's mostly in spirits now another interesting thing about kind of brewing with like the the different herbs and and things like that that you do you like to brew with is you get as you mentioned like the flavors but there's also the medicinal things have you brewed a beer where you attempted to have the beer have some effect or are you really just more interested in the flavors and then using stuff that was used before like a ginseng beer yeah sure Ooh, that could be good yeah i haven't haven't done that one yet but well, with me, it really came about initially was using the herbs for the mm-hmm. flavoring. And in researching those herbs, that's when I started to discover, oh, there's also all these medicinal qualities. So I do know a lot of people who do brew intentionally for the medicinal effects, but you know, the, the flavor is first and for, foremost what I'm mm-hmm. looking for. You know, there are some that I, like a mead I like to make is uh, with with peach and uh, the herb whorehound. Okay. Whorehound. H-O-R-E. Yeah. You know, like the candy and it's actually traditionally used it's still used in cough drops today it's a okay you know it, it's an expectorant so you know if you've got phlegm built up and then the peaches will provide vitamin c and the honey's got its own effect so i like to bring those out you know around cold season it's a good excuse to have a mead and whorehound is is a traditional bittering herb it can also give a very medicinal flavor if you overdo it i don't mind it overdone a little bit some mm. people do All right. but yeah pretty much i want to enjoy drinking it so the flavor is my first awesome. thought what i found interesting is and i didn't actually know this before you just mentioned it is that most of your audience uh for your books or for your writing is sort of the homesteading crowd or folks who are really into kind of forging their own ingredients and things like that um i anticipated that your book might have some appeal to home brewers of the more conventional style who have been maybe curious about um pre-modern brewing but they're just afraid of it so you know, if you're if you're going to talk to someone who's like, oh man, it's so easy just to go to the homebrew store and buy the things they have and make the beer. I'm interested in this. Like, what's your advice to someone who's like, okay, let me give this a shot. Like, where where where's a good starting point? Um, yeah, and, and I will say that my I used to think that was my it is my core audience, mm-hmm. but I have found that there are a lot of people who are just into brewing in general who are interested in both of my books. And you know, I always tell people doing any kind of brewing, you know, first off, just don't worry. Don't stress over it. I think Charlie Papazian, can't even say his name. <laughs> in the joy of homebrewing, he mentions something like stress is one of the top things that can be. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe the, the, the coined phrase is relax and have a homebrew. 
yeah, I think I, I read read that section recently, and a little past that, he says something like, you know, worry will ruin a home beer, such a beautiful home beer more than anything else. And then the other thing is, you know, people are very concerned about if they're going to poison themselves or kill themselves. And you know, my main thing is, you, know, you will maybe occasionally make a beer that <laughs> no, you should have longer awful. pause. My point is, you will, you will, <laughs> you will kill yourself. That's you heard it here first. Jeremy Zimmerman, everybody. Thanks yeah. for coming to the show. No. Don't just use that as a sound. <laughs> you were saying you will occasionally. <laughs> yeah. You know, what I tell people is if you put something in your beer that on its own would make you sick or kill you, you know, that that's, that's about, you know, the only thing you want to be concerned about, like, especially if you're foraging, make sure you know what you're doing. You know, you can make a terrible beer. You can make a beer that might even make you a little bit sick for whatever reason, but you know, that's, it's it's a pretty unlikely thing to happen unless you just put something wrong in the actual brew. So it's 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 a lot safer than some people might think to kind of brew with these odd ingredients. Well, I also had kind of an interesting reaction. I reached out on Twitter to to our audience and asked for questions for you. And then one of the questions I got basically was like, "Is this dude just doing this?" because he can or is he like it was almost hostile like why would you do this why don't we just make fucking regular beer um like have you run into any of that kind of feedback which i, I think is sort of an interesting response to to something well i will say there are a lot of uh nitwits on the internet i'm not saying this guy what is there it? are dumb people on the internet <laughs> i know i mean just there there's i get a lot of positive feedback in general from myself right but there are a few people with that attitude, just like not even necessarily about me specifically, but other people would brew like mm-hmm. I do. Just like, why? Why would you want to do this? Um, you know, there are various reasons. You know, just plain and simple for me, it's like I I enjoy a good straightforward beer, but you know, I also don't like doing what I'm told. <laughs> uh, and I, I I like to you know I think that's the one of the best things about brewing is experimentation, and and that and to be honest, a lot of the stuff that I brew now, I never would have thought that I did, would have even considered. But it all started from historical research. And I, as I was researching, I'm like, other you know, people have made these kinds of beers in the past. I want to give it a yeah. try. What I think, um, not, not doing what you're told is something that I know uh, is certainly inspiring to some. And I want to talk a little bit more after we come back from the break uh, about something that you don't necessarily do that everyone is told. I, I think it's been repeated on this show that I'm like a sanitization freak. I will not brew without star sand. It makes me very anxious to do so. I do not fear the foam. Sometimes I just wipe bacteria all over my beer. It pisses me off. Um, <laughs> so when we come back from the break, uh, I want you to talk a little bit more about some of the brewing processes that you use and and uh, maybe give our listeners a sense that maybe that the uh, star sand's not so important welcome back to plato's gravity as we mentioned before the break uh i'm gonna hello yeah jeremy's gonna come back and tell me why i don't need to worry about star sand well there's, there's you know you can use it all you want i'd say i don't necessarily go out and say don't use it and let's let's take let's let's take a break for for just for just a second and and star sand is what we use right yeah i mean yeah star sand is is let's just start chemical you don't wait well, you don't use you don't necessarily need to use chemical sanitizer chemical sanitizer so yeah if you want to yeah. use iodine whatever all yeah. right sorry yeah well there, there are two things that led me to this and I, I still do have you know some sanitizers i do like the especially the no wash or i'm sorry no rinse cleansers mm, sure um like one step but when I first started 
going into the idea for my initial book, you know, how Vikings made mead, obviously they didn't use chemical sanitizers, but, you know, I wanted to make it to brew as close as possible to how people would have done it traditionally. And the one thing that, you know, I was a little concerned about it, but I, you know, I was trying it in small batches. And the one thing that opened my eyes was, you know, one of my biggest influences is the book Wild Fermentation by Sander okay. Katz. And, and I've, I've actually, you know, met him and he's, he's talked to me about the same thing in that, it opened his eyes were open when he went like tra- he did a lot of traveling in Africa, mm-hmm. and you know there are people they, they've got all kinds of traditional beers and meads and they're just you know they're they're not there's nothing even resembling a sanitizer anywhere near their brewing and they're brewing in like wood you know in gourds and wooden troughs sure. and and all this stuff and and he was like you know and that's really how traditionally people did it for a long time. So it's, I think in general, our modern society has such a, a fear of germs and bacteria. I mean, really a lot of bacteria are, are actually important to us. So I, you know, I, I do have a bit of a uh, um, soapbox I stand on when it comes to, you know, keep keeping our, our good bacteria from, from dying off. But just when it comes to brewing, you know, again, I still do have some sanitizer I use once in a while, especially if it's some equipment I that's been sitting for quite some time and, and you know, gather some gunk mm-hmm. on it. But I, I've begun more and more to approach it like I do with cooking. I mean, I, yeah, everything is very clean. I clean things, but, you know, wash it with, you know, I try to get like a no, uh, unscented natural soap. And, you, and some people say not to use soap because I guess somehow if it's not rinsed out, it can come through in the brew. I've never Foam noticed Foam retention it. problems. Yeah, that's true. If you, like, yeah. if you do dishes and... Like you leave too much soap on a plate, like yeah, you're gonna taste it, but stop being bad at doing dishes. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, there's a difference between sterilization and sanitization. So, you know, I do sterilize with heat. You know, I've got a dishwasher and equipment that fits mm-hmm. in that. When I bottle, I run all my bottles through the uh, through the dishwasher, all right, and then let them sit and get go through the heat process to so dry. So, when you do that, do you use uh, heat like only, or are you putting like detergent in, inside of the dishwasher? I put a little bit of detergent if there are bottles that haven't been washed out. If they're just if they're already clean, then yeah, I might just run it through the the rinse cycle and then let it dry. Yeah, I always kind of wonder about this because I feel like I, I I've I've been I've been afraid of using like detergents and soap based on what the people have of have said about like what it does for foam retention and things like that. So like my dishwasher has like. Um, the rinse agent in it and and like i've read stuff on the interwebs that say you shouldn't use the rinse agent so then like otherwise you can get it like i like i've gone to the point in my mind where i'm like okay what i need is i need a second dishwasher in my house and i needed to just have pbw in it but no rinse solution and i'm sort of feeling liberated that you make quality beer in your bottling lines without this weird rules i've imposed on myself yeah i mean very occasionally, for whatever reason, I will certainly have a batch of brew that doesn't turn out that great, mm. that doesn't have good head retention. But in general, as I've been practicing this more and more and just being more lax about it and you know cleaning everything but not sanitizing, I've made plenty of perfectly good batches of beer and mead and haven't had any of these problems. You know, I've read all these different things in, in some books, but especially on the Internet. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't. And I, I don't wonder if sometimes it's because it happened to a couple people or one person and then suddenly somebody saw it on the Internet and lots of other people or whatever reason. I mean, I have nothing. I have no problem with people who are putting out all these mm. ideas. I just there, there are so many of them. I, I got, you know, I got to 
it's stressful to go through the internet and try to find all the things that you should well, and I do. think what you're kind of describing is, is uh, how misinformation and beer myths might get started. And one of the things you talk about in your books is how much of beer history is just uh, ill-repeated things that aren't necessarily based in reality or at least aren't confirmed by the research that you've done. So can you talk about perhaps the the beer myth that you might have held going into your research that you were the most surprised to have been debunked? Boy, there are a lot of them. I'm trying to... One one in particular is, you know, it's, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Groot. Yeah, just a little bit, yeah. Groot, some people might say herbal beers. Oh, I thought we were talking about and, Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, there's that Groot too. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it's become kind of a trend lately to brew with herbs, which mm-hmm. is great. But I, you know, I've found, you know, because I got in, I got in with a little group of uh, other historical brewers who are, you know, who do their reenactment stuff and want to be as authentic as possible. Mm-hmm. So they started connecting me with all these, because you go, you read a couple books and they say what they say, but then if you start going back to very early ser- sources or just original sources, mm-hmm. so we found out all this stuff about, you know, everybody talks about Groot is an herbal blend. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where it came from, and. It, honestly, I still haven't really found an answer for sure of what it was. It's actually turns out to be a very complicated thing. And, you know, some my friends and I are researching it or still looking into it. But it, it very well may have actually been more of a concentrated, you know, something akin to an extract that was prepared hmm. and then sent off. And then people would use that to make the... So it's not necessarily this herbal mixture that everybody thought it was herbs were used in so it. So extract brewing is real brewing. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> oh no i mean that's fine it's totally fine yeah and i, I don't know if extract is really the right word for it because again it's it's hard it's, it's it's been difficult to tell exactly what it was because there's a whole lot of even in the original sources a whole lot of contradictory stuff so it's it's one thing that we may never really know so it's like the internet as before the com- internet talked about it's, yeah. Well, you talk a little bit in your book about uh, about doing one gallon batches. In my sense, uh, if we like come into extract uh, as as a thing, my sense is that when you're brewing one gallon batches, you it seemed like I couldn't tell, but it seemed like you preferred to brew with extract when you brew one gallon inside. Is that correct, or am I did I miss that? I don't know that I prefer, but it's a you know if I just want to make a quick, simple beer. I mean, I, I do have recipes for one gallon all grain batches as well, but you know I wanted to provide recipes and technique for it you know the simplest beer you can possibly make you know all the way to the other end of the spectrum so i I put what i call simple ales and so you know a lot of the early recipes i found didn't use even grains at all they were just brewing with sugar like ginger okay actually the recipes for that yeah and people would say well that's not really a beer yeah well well, we're talking about we're talking about like an herb extract we're talking about herbs like soaked in liquor right whereas we just switched to talking about uh, malt extract, right? Well, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm kind of leading into that from there, okay. I guess. So what, when I do a one gallon batch, um, you know, I, I I will either do you know like a pound of cane sugar with my herbs, and what really you know turns out is more of a hard soda, you yeah. might say, but it does taste you know similar enough to a beer. But you can do the same thing with just like a a pound of dry malt extract. So I, I use you know DME. That's I use that a fair bit if I just want to make a quick one-gallon batch. You can get that done pretty quick on a stovetop. It doesn't take much. 
And it's a good way for people to start out. I wouldn't say I personally do it a lot, right. but I, I like to provide that as an option for people who are a little overwhelmed by all the equipment and technique and everything. I, kinda, I really like the idea of like doing um, just water, sugar, and like mint, something like something basic, a flavor that everyone knows. Make like a hard uh, peppermint drink, hard peppermint bubbly. Yeah, and you know, I, I got into that from. Uh, yeah, you know, one of my biggest inspirations was Sacred Herbal and Healing Beers, or something like that, by Stephen Harrod Booner. And a lot of his recipes, pretty much all of them, are just brown sugar and whatever herbs he puts okay. in. Which, to me, it doesn't really taste quite like a beer, but it's simple and quick and a little bit boozy and it tastes yeah. good. So, Yeah, I think, so do you have like a, a, a gateway recipe that people who are maybe more into conventional beer uh, but have reached out to you and like, hey, how should I get started? What's uh, Do you have a gateway recipe for them? Um, I, I certainly have some in the book. Um, if, if they if they want to just learn the process, there's a, I have a ginger coriander ale, which is actually done with, with the brown sugar, so it's more of a ginger okay. ale kind of a beer. But you can substitute that sugar for malt extract and use the ginger and the coriander, and I put a little bit of orange in it. Orange have you ever peel. mixed the two, like brown sugar and DME? Um, not those two specifically, but I do. I am an advocate for if you want to up the alcohol content or don't want to use as much in the way of uh, grains of you know adding in sugar brown sugar or yeah i usually do cane okay. sugar but yeah you can certainly blend all the different ones and I, i'm a big fan of if, if you want to blend a bunch of different sugars and make something boozy you know call it what you want right <laughs> it'll still turn out something yeah. good that's awesome your first book was uh of course make mead like a viking can you talk we haven't talked too much about mead uh on on this show before can you talk about in the mead world, are your recipes sort of more or less conventional? My, my sense like, with mead is that, you know, there's lots of different things that people can do with mead and that using foraged ingredients or different things isn't really that off off the wall in the mead world. So is that is that correct? Or was your, your book still kind of pushing the boundaries of what like modern mead is? Yeah, I think it, it definitely pushed the boundaries uh, to a sense, uh, to a degree. But um, th- that was more, I think, along the lines of my you know, talking about wild yeast or, you know, going low key with the sanitization and all, I think that was the stuff that, you know, pushed the boundaries a bit for some people. But a lot of people who make mead really do like to play around with a lot of different herbs. You know, that's, that's a big part of mead. One of the terms like mead gets all these different names if you add things to it. Okay. So fruit, fruit mead is a melomel and I won't go through them all, but my favorite is, you know, methaglin, which is herbs and spices. Oh. And the cool thing about that is it comes from the Welsh word, which is something like mediglin, which is where we get medicine. Oh. Kind of goes back to how beer and mead was intentionally made medicinally. It's awesome. Well, and I kind of like, one of the things I like about this book and and just talking to you in general is uh, a lot of times we're making recipes for beer. We're just punching things into Beersmith. Like if we add this ingredient, this ingredient, this ingredient, we're going to get potentially this much sugar and we're going to get, we add this yeast, we're going to get this kind of finish. And this is the beer we're going to get. So long as we get our numbers, it's 100%. Like, before we start, we kind of know more or less what we're going to get. There's not really a lot of uh, experimentation after that point. I like the idea of bringing... Like, when you cook and you're like, oh, but maybe this is better with oregano in there. So I'll sprinkle some dry oregano. Or I have some fresh uh, cilantro in the fridge. Why don't I chop that up and throw that on top? And I bet that's going to be amazing. I like bringing that approach uh, 
to making beer and to making weed. Yeah, and that's kind of how I cook too. Is you know, I, I have a hard time sharing recipes. Because I'm just like, I don't know. I just throw a bunch of stuff in a pot and it tastes good. So, do you ever do you ever, do you use any any software to like determine like to figure out what your original gravity is going to be or things like that, or are you mostly just winging and measuring? Yeah, you know, to be honest, I I started trying to use Beersmith and it you know kind of start to hurt my head <laughs> that's fair <laughs> i i'm terrible with numbers and science and forms and formulas and i know beersmith can be you know pretty simple once you get to use no, it. no i you don't know who words, told but... you that they are wrong <laughs> okay okay I, I, I was hoping it. Would. I, I particularly enjoy it but jason jason might have 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 different opinions that, I, sp- I spend enough time working with numbers uh and i've spent enough of my youth working with spreadsheets that i think i'm okay Aaron, have fun. I, I, I do the beersmithing in this uh, brewing relationship. Yeah, I mean, one, one thing I will use is like a priming sugar calculator because by the time I get to bottling, I've got less than I initially started with. So I, yeah, most of the time I know how much I need, but that is one thing I will go online for. Yeah. yeah, so when you're brewing like a Yeti, like is a hydrometer always allowed or do you sometimes go completely old school and take the tools out of the way? Um, yeah, a hydrometer for me is just uh, it's, it's a nice addition to have. Um, but to be honest... I used to have a whole bunch of them, and they just keep falling off counters and breaking and tired <laughs> buying new ones. So, but I, I, it is important, especially when I'm doing an all grain, and um, I, I want to, I want to have an idea of what. Usually, I know I have a pretty good idea based on you know how much sugar I've, you know, how much malt, I'm sorry, how much wort I've extracted, yeah. and all that sort of thing. But so it is, you know, near the end, I may drop that, drop it in there, and be like, oh, you know what, I could use a little more so i had some honey here maybe a little bit of cane nice. sugar or some dme i mean it's when i'm crafting a new recipe especially it is nice to have hydrometer i just don't really rely on it all sure. that much so i i think one of the things that we haven't touched on that i'd like to touch on is in your book you, you cover not only brewing with uh, non-traditional ingredients but using sort of non-traditional methods so can you talk about um your your favorite non-modern uh brewing technique and what that entails um yeah, I would say brewing traditional like Norwegian and Finnish beers. Um, an example would be Sati, S-A-H-T-I from Finland. And I'm not going to say this right, but Gotland <laughs> is what it is. A Swedish beer. And both of those, number one, use um, smoked malts because right. traditionally they would have had to have had that flavor because that's how they dried their malt was over mm. a fire. So I will go out and I'll smoke. You know, I actually smoke my own malts because I have bought smoked malts and it just doesn't quite have the flavor. All right. All right. But actually, you know, the entire process can be done over a fire. And I, I learned about this actually through Randy Mosher's uh, great book, uh, Radical Yeah, Brewing. it's a good book. And, you know, he, and he, he talks about stone brewing or stein beer as it is in Germany, which is, you know, you're heating the wort and sometimes even the mash with an extremely hot rock. <laughs> and so I will, you know, I don't do this one very often because it takes a lot of time, but, um, it's not, you know, most of the time it's just sitting by fire and drinking a beer and waiting. <laughs> cool. Take, it takes but, beer to make beer. You know, I go out, yeah, and I've got a fire pit in my backyard, and I, you know, get started early, get get the uh, the stones I need to heat the beer. I, you know, smoke my malt, maybe smoke smoke some other ingredients that I might want to put in there for smoke flavoring. And, you know, it's so, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll go ahead and start the malt the normal way, just, you know, the modern way, just to, or I'm sorry, start, start sure. the mash. Do the, do the mash in my mash tun mm. and just heat the uh, the actual wort with the hot right. stones. But you can go as far as heating your strike water and everything else. And obviously you're not going to be going by specific 
temperatures in that right case. you gotta be kind of winging it because they didn't have thermometers yeah and, and i read a lot of there are actually people who are researching you know how neolithic people made beer and who have tried you know these experiments that i kind of followed what they did so i'm not the first one to All do right. this so you if you make that beer and you don't use any like propane in any step of the process and you're smoking you're smoking your malts and stuff like how how long, how long does that take? Yeah, you know, I usually do it like on a Sunday and try to get started at least with the fire by, you know, nine or 10 or something. And, you know, the last time I did it, it was, you know, it was dark by the time, you know, my friend and I got to actually just even heating the wort part. Wow. So, because there's just a lot of time waiting, yeah. you know, waiting for the, and when I talk rocks and you don't just use any rock for this, you need a you know, very solid non-porous one like granite. Wow. Okay. And I realized I didn't have any granite, you know, quarries around me that I knew of, and then I found out there was a place near me that made gravestones. Okay. Uh. <laughs> a monument place. So I went by and told him what I needed, and he said, "Over the side of the hill, there's a whole bunch of just pieces that chipped off." And so I actually have, you know, some of the the rocks that I heat with have somebody's initials. <laughs> so on you them. you're brewing with rocks that aren't good enough to mark dead people. <laughs> that is the most tombstone beer you might want. It's the most it. metal thing I've ever heard. <laughs> that's what I that's what I thought when I, I, I think it's a really good time for Jason to ask his off the wall questions. Uh, yeah, Aaron, you want to explain what the off the wall question is? Yeah, the off the wall question. Once I, every now and again, we uh, decide to have Jason ask a question that has nothing to do with beer or brewing uh, to kind of mix it up on the show. See if we can uh, tell some interesting stories about our guests by putting them on the spot. Yeah. So, uh, you ready for this? No. That's fair. <laughs> okay. All right. Let me take a drink of three flops. There it is. Okay. Breathe. Okay. How do you feel knowing? that neither Aaron nor I are wearing pants. Well, I'm in my underwear, so... Ah! I'm sitting in my living room. Three is company, no, too. How do I feel? That's cool. the weirdest off-the-wall question we've ever had. <laughs> I just want to point out to people that I'm always... To be honest, I'm just... I think it's cool that you're so relaxed. Yeah. It's also... It's also I mean, it's also a lie. It's also false. I mean, it would be fine if if it weren't. I mean, yeah, you know, no, it'd be. I mean, whatever. Aaron and I have gone to a gym before. We've gone to the locker room. It's fine. But you're making it weird, Jason. I, I mean, Aaron and I sleep naked together constantly. <laughs> it's so correct. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, boy. This was, certainly was Jason's off the wall <laughs> question today. I just want to point that a lot of times people are like, oh, uh, you should be surprised that I'm in my underwear. But I think, you know, for most of my life, I am in my underwear. I'm also in other things. That is a good yeah. point. In, in true. So we record this at uh, Aaron's house. Um, and under normal circumstances, we are dressed normally. We're just wearing street clothes. This is the first time. And I think this is actually common for people who do internet things. Aaron is wearing pajama bottoms i am and that's like uh most twitch streamers you watch they're wearing pjs most uh youtube people you don't see them below the waist so i made the decision to not put on um conventional pants i'll use the word conventional today <laughs> since it's the word of the day conventional pants because we were doing an audio format i uh did not anticipate my co-host uh announcing my choices but i feel like now we have to take our pants off we are not gonna do that <laughs> well are, are they like really 
cool pajamas with like some cool designs no, on them, no. like Mario. They or have something. a they have a clover. They have a clover that says every day underneath, and I have no idea why the fuck it says every day underneath a clover. I, uh, some of them say lucky. You're lucky every some day. of them say lucky day. Oh, it does say lucky day every day. Jeremy, you win the prize for understanding my pants. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's move back into so, some more brewing stuff. Actually, not brewing stuff, fermenting stuff. So one of the things that you talk about a lot is fermenting things that don't necessarily turn into to alcohol or not high concentrations of alcohol aside from beer and meat what's your favorite thing to ferment um yeah are we talking drinks drinks food whatever you want to do yeah kimchi i don't know yeah no i i do pretty much all of it i mean i I make a lot of sauerkraut and kimchi and pickles and yeah i'm just into fermentation in general but i also make um kind of you know what you'd call i guess natural sodas for my kids and myself which is a similar process to making like the simple ale or ginger ale with the sugar. But you just, you know, you let it ferment for a couple of days, bottle it for like 12 hours in like a glass, you know, one of those thick Grosch flip top mm-hmm. bottles and open it carefully outside. <laughs> you know, sometimes it fizzes a little, sometimes it goes crazy because you are, but you're basically bottling it for turns to, to beer and you're drinking it pretty quick. Oh. So, so I like to make how it. much of your fermenting time with beer and, and mead, maybe more specifically, is wild fermentation, or, or how often are you pitching yeast instead? Um, I, I don't do nearly as much wild fermentation as some people might think, just because my you know, my first book, Wild Fermentation, is in the title. So I certainly do a fair share of it, but mostly with mead. I do, most of my mead workshops are teaching people how to start mead with wild yeast. So you know, I would say a good amount of my mead is wild sure. fermentation. And I play around with, you know, doing wild, making a wild starter with, with some beer as well. But one thing certainly in doing this new book is I, I did a chapter on each of the you know, four main sure. ingredients that most people use, grains, hops, yeast water. I, I got so deep into the world of yeast and the, just the amazing history and science behind it and variety. And so I, I have definitely been playing around with a lot more yeast than I used All right. to. So if I was going to like do a wild yeast beer for the first time or a wild mead, You'd it seems sort of, it, by yourself. it seems sort of mystical. <laughs> it seems sort of mystical to me. Cause it's sort of like in general, you just take it outside and wait. Right. But like, you have any tips, like how can you do it? So maybe it has more success or, or what are your thoughts about this? Uh, coming from someone who's never made a wild, uh, a wild fermented beer or, or mead. Uh, a good way for sure is to start with mead and I'll, I'll run through real quick how i make a starter and then you can actually use that starter to start a mead or okay. a beer but i'll you know i'll take like a quart jar and put you know the, the amounts don't matter so much as the ratios so fill it about a quarter of the way with honey okay. and not quite to the top a little over three quarters with you know a good spring water okay. i don't want to just use tap water right out of the tap because that's got chlorine in it's going to kill sure. the yeast and so I'm using a raw honey, which means it's it hasn't been pasteurized. It's still got yeast in it from like the pollen that the bees yeah, right. brought. And then I'll I'll put in some ingredients that have wild yeast on them. Uh, sometimes it's just organic raisins from the store. Depending on the time of the year, I, I will actually go out and you know, like in the spring, I'll I'll pull like violets or dandelion petals from my yard and just drop a few things like that I know will have gathered yeast mm-hmm. on them. Um, you can use, you know, grapes if you got grapes that have the yeast bloom okay. on them, or any other kind of fruit really. So just put the, you know, put something like that in there to help things along with the yeast. But usually, just the honey and water will start fermenting on its own. I've had that happen. Wow. All right. 
So basically, I just do all that. I blend it all up, put it in kind of a warm spot. I put a uh, cheesecloth or like paper towel or something over it with a rubber band to keep keep critters out of it. And then you just aerate it from there. Okay. And I usually have a little like for my court jar. I just have like a uh, chopstick or something I use, or I swirl it. But you know, aerate it, you know, stir it, swirl it a couple times a day, and usually in about three days, sometimes five, it starts fizzing. Okay. And, you know, it, it does seem like this magical myst- mystical process. That used to be called spontaneous fermentation because people thought it came from nowhere, but now we know it comes from the yeast. So, and you basically use that as your yeast to pick. Okay. So, and then you might like, would you, would you sometimes like take that yeast and throw it into like a starter, like throw it into some wort and try to give it some oxygen and let it grow? Or, or is usually like what you've done described there enough for like a five gallon batch of meat or, or beer? Um, yeah, that, that the whole jar would, would do a five gallon just fine. Or you can you can actually keep it keep it going if you want to put an airlock in the jar and just feed it honey every once in a while. That's awesome. Honey and a little bit of water. But like, you know, just a cup of that will, will start a one gallon batch easily or so less. Like, is spontaneous fermentation from start to finish, uh, like how long are you letting it ferment? Um, is it literally just till it well, stops? You know, yeah, what? Yeah, you know, basically the one thing that I always have to clarify when I'm teaching this at a workshop is you are just bypassing buying a packet of yeast. So once you have, you know, it takes about three days to five days to get that fermentation started, get the fizz going. At that point, you've just got a packet of yeast in a jar. So everything else from there is the same as, as, you know the way you normally brew that's just the, you're just pitching that liquid yeast basically. i think what's 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 happened is that jason and i are going to try this we're going to post our results on social media so you guys should follow along with our first ever wild beer but i want to get to our listener question segment because we're coming up on time and I, i'm really excited about this listener question segment because we are on episode i think 13 this is 13 maybe it's 12 i don't know it's 12 or 13 episode 9 million it is not uh, and this is the <laughs> first time that we have a, a question for the show that comes from someone i don't know which is super exciting. I hope to get to know at uh, uh, JKT Brew on Twitter. Uh, and he has a question actually specifically for Jeremy. Um, what non-traditional ingredients surprised you the most with the result, both good and bad? Is there anything you thought would be great, but turned out not so good? Or is there anything that was worrisome going in, but turned out fantastic? I really like this question. Huh. Fortunately, I have thought on this one because I saw that. <laughs> he did tweet it uh, and at mention you. That's good. Yeah, it, it is a good one. There's certainly some I played around with that I, I may try again, but I'm not so sure about. Um, one that I was not really sure about, but was pleasantly surprised, was uh, tree bark. Okay. From an, from an oak tree. Oh, oak tree bark. And apparently that was a very common ingredient for actually for making the bark and the oak. I'm sorry, the bark and the root would be used to make like a root. Okay. Beer. And I just did a one gallon. You know, that's, that's one. That's one answer to one of my earlier questions about why would you sometimes do a one gallon dry malt mm-hmm. extract is to experiment with things like that. I don't want to waste. Okay. So you're not doing all that all grain jazz just to see what the, 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 the tree bark tastes like. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, I, I did one without hops or anything and it, it had a, you could definitely taste it. was it was had kind of a root beer taste right. and it had it provided a certain degree of bittering. And when I say bark, we're actually not talking about their rough hour. Okay. Bark. You go a little below that, and there's a layer that you can peel off called the cadmium. Okay. okay. The cadmium. uh, That is maybe going to be in the show notes if I can figure out how to spell it. So the cadmium of an oak tree. Surprisingly good. And there there were a lot of other trees that were used, too, but that's the one I tried, and that was a uh, traditional one. Anything you thought was going to be great but was terrible? Well, I don't know that I thought it was going to be great, but I wanted to 
try it. And it's it's just, you know, it's something I reference in both my books because it was a very traditional ingredient. And that's wormwood. Oh, yeah. Which I know just sounds delicious. Just uh, <laughs> A traditional ingredient in, uh, um, oh, uh, Everclear, not Everclear, the stuff that, uh, uh, absinthe, absinthe, that's the word that I could not find. Yeah, and it's, it's. Um, I, I should say that I think cadmium is something else. I just realized it's cambium. Cambium. <laughs> Aha. It definitely was not going to be in the show notes because I would not have been able to find it. So thank you for that. For that clarification. I would just look up tree. Yeah, that's good stuff. But yeah, the wormwood is, I, I, I am still experimenting with it, but it, it is literally, you know, scientifically termed to be the most bitter substance. Besides a divorce. <laughs> Besides a divorce. Okay, uh, real quick before, we're about to, uh, to, to wrap up the show. Do you have any parting shots for, uh, uh, for anyone who might be, I don't know, just interested in, in doing something that they might not have uh, done before listening to this episode? Something I can't emphasize enough is don't be afraid to, you know, experiment. It's, that's the one thing when I kind of just lightened up and was like, I don't have to follow every recipe. I mean, it's certainly nothing wrong with following a recipe very closely. But once you get once you get a feel for how the process works, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, play around with different ingredients. Make a tea out of it first if you want to try a new herb to see how it tastes. If you don't like the tea, you're not going to like it in okay. beer either. So, but... You know, just just be chill. Just be chill, uh, and then borrow. We'll, we'll end up by borrowing Charlie Papazian's words: "Relax and have a home brew." Uh, Jeremy, I want to thank you a ton for coming on the show. It's been really fascinating for us to get to talk to you. I enjoyed uh, reading through your book as well. So, a uh, real shout out to Chelsea Green Publishing who sent us a copy of that uh, to read before the show. Uh, thank you for that. I want to thank all of our listeners for listening to this episode of Plato's Gravity. If you have a question for the show, you can find us at Plato's Gravity on Twitter, Instagram, and on our Facebook page. You can also email us at podcast at platosgravity.com. If you love the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can connect with Jeremy on Facebook at facebook.com slash J-E-R-E-M-E-Z-I-M-M Yeti. Uh, you can check the show notes if you didn't follow that. Shotes. If you are interested in brewing beer like a Yeti, making me like a Viking, or connecting with Jeremy on any other social media platform, again, check those show notes for the links. In the meantime, forage for some junipers, brew some beer, and have some fun. <laughs>